0: Hey, you cracked podcast listener! Why don't you turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace? Because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, or just being you. Maybe you write. Maybe you do photography. Maybe a third thing human beings can do to cap off that list. Ah, that would have been good to think of. Either way, why don't you head to squarespace.com/cracked for a free trial? And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save ten percent off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt. I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmidty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmidty the Champ, And I am also, also going to play you a real song from the real past, even though, boy, it sounds fake.
1: Last night I was dreaming, dreamed about the H-bomb, where the bomber went off and I was caught, I was the only. women,
0: only one man in town. You just heard a clip of the band Bill Haley and His Comets. Uh, you might know their name mainly because they had a smash hit song called Rock Around the Clock. Most people don't know what the B-side of that single was. Yeah, Do you guys remember singles and B-sides? I don't. I've only read about them, but that was how music used to work. And uh, the B-side of this smash hit song that millions of people bought, the B-side was called 13 Women and Only One Man in Town. And that's what you just heard a clip of. 13 Women and Only One Man in Town. It was released in 1954 in the height of the Cold War. You you might have heard that lyric about the H-bomb and it dropping. Hey, that sounds like a nuclear apocalypse. It is. And that's the plot of the song.
1: I had two girls every morning.
0: The song's uh, other lyrics basically go on to create a, like, winky fantasy where the only people left on Earth are the one guy who's the singer and 13 women, and then they proceed to have lots of euphemisms for sex with him.
1: I had three guys dancing the mamba, three guys balling the jack, and all of the rest really did their best, boy, they sure were alive and high.
0: That was the tune. People just listened to that in mainstream culture. This was not like a weird underground television's Adult Swim kind of thing. It was just what people threw on. Because it was 1954, and that brings us into our topic. The topic is, The Weirdest Ways America Tried to Win the Cold War. One more time, that is, The Weirdest Ways America Tried to Win the Cold War... You know I love history. That's one reason we're doing this. Uh, but also, we're not just looking at military strategies that the U.S. did and spy stuff the U.S. did to try to beat the Soviets. We're looking closest at cultural changes designed to defeat the russians america reformatted its economy and society and in particular its families to try to defeat the soviets from uh, the end of world war ii all the way into the early 90s and that's one of the ways life is more interesting than people think it is that designed the country that we live in in the united states today and impacted the rest of the world too And I got to do this topic at all because listeners like you supported our first ever Cracked Podcast tour. Uh, We taped this live at the Amsterdam Bar and Hall in St. Paul, Minnesota, Twin Cities. And I'm thrilled we could tour this show because, uh, as I said when we released our Chicago episode of that tour a few weeks ago, There was a purpose behind doing the show on the road. We didn't do it just to do it, even though that's very fun. I did this tour because I wanted to have conversations that I couldn't have any other way. Go to the places these people are and get to talk to them. And then you loop in people from town because all our live episodes include the audience and they contribute their own stories and facts and amazing things. And so we could do this topic because we went on the road. And I think that's cool. The guests on this show are incredible Minnesota comedians and podcasters that you'll hear about in a sec, and also the top scholar on this exact topic of of America's cultural approach to winning the Cold War, and she's based at the University of Minnesota, so that, that made this work. It was a whole thing. We did a few visuals in this show. Occasionally, a live episode will project some things to show to the audience. They'll be described in detail in the audio, so don't worry. You'll have a good listening experience. And then also, they are, of course, in the food notes if you'd like to see them. Uh, Especially if you're busy now, you can look at them later or whatever. I particularly recommend the picture of a bomb shelter for cows. Whoa, that's a thing coming up. Isn't that neat? That's everything to know going into this. I cannot wait for you to hear this incredible panel and these audience members who I couldn't talk to any other way. So please sit back or sit in your bomb shelter for cows, because again, that really happened. Either way, here's this live tour episode of the Cracked Podcast in St. Paul, Minnesota, with guests Chloe Radcliffe, John Moe, and Dr. Elaine Tyler-May. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I am so excited to talk to every person we have tonight. This is a, a murderer's row of wonderful uh, Minnesota folks. Uh, first up, she is a TBS comic to watch, a Star Tribune artist to watch, and a Minnesota native, especially here for the show. Please give a very warm welcome to Chloe Radcliffe. Oh!
2: oh hello, hello!
3: <laughs> Hi, everybody.
0: If you're listening at home, Chloe reached for a handshake and I did a strange velociraptor claw <laughs> I don't straight know
3: what to her. it was, but
2: it's very kind of Alex <laughs> to take the fall
3: for that one. Uh, here's the horrifying moment when I admit that uh, Alex just said, you know, if you have any memories of the Cold War, we all lived through it. Um, well. I did not <laughs> live through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those fucking millennials. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh. laughs>
0: Next up, uh, you know him from uh, his amazing show The Hilarious World of Depression, also a show he did called Wits, uh, many books including Dear Luke, We Need to Talk Darth, and other pop culture correspondences. Please, put your hands together, go crazy, for John Moe.
5: We roll with awkwardness here in Minnesota. (laughs) Welcome. And then uh, finally on the panel, uh, she is a Regents Professor of
0: American Studies and of History at the University of Minnesota. Go Golden Gophers. That's right? Great. Uh, oh boy, you're not from here. <laughs>
5: I was like, quick, what was that football thing? You have, it. With, with the Gophers, you have to sigh whenever you talk about them. <laughs> it's, it's actually pronounced <sighs> Gophers. <laughs> golden is silent.
0: But also, and she's the author of many incredible books, including Homeward Bound and Fortress America. Please welcome Dr. Elaine tyler May. Yeah. Elaine tyler right? Hey.
6: I get to be the nerd on the panel. <laughs>
1: you weren't on Jeopardy.
0: He referred to me being on Jeopardy. I don't know if everybody knows that.
3: Yeah, Elaine, this is a panel of nerds.
5: <laughs> I've only been in Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Different preposition.
0: <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're talking about the Cold War and this, this weird uh, phenomenon. I feel like it's, it's the, such a thing where it was a vibe for decades. What was it like being in it? You know? I'm, I'm always curious about that.
5: For me, it, it was I, I was born in 1968, so for me it just meant growing up with the constant certainty that death was around the corner. Um, wow. and, and it's really something that I don't think is recognized in our culture now that entire generations grew up certain that the bomb was about to drop. Like my only thought, the way I connected to the Cold War is, can it wait till I have sex once? Just, <laughs> just the one time, it'll be fine. And But it really suffused everything. Like you'd be well i got to do good on this math test why so i can get a good grade well why does that matter so i could get into a good college i'll be dead by college <laughs> <laughs> and so i think it's this for you know psychologically speaking it's this trauma that a lot of people you know and i'm not i'm not sure of what the dates would be of the the traumatized but i know for for generation x the silent generation <laughs> it's always been a factor
3: i think it's some um, like Sweet twist of irony, now in 2018 and 2019, we are also convinced that death is around the corner.
5: (laughs) By glacier, but not by bomb. Right. Yeah. So there's variety. (laughs) I'm just trying to make it upbeat. I don't know. Uh,
0: The
3: ever positive Alex
0: (laughs) Smith. Elaine, how about you? How do you... Well, I I guess in in particular, in terms of getting into your entire field of, of looking at how... Families and society and all of this worked in the Cold War. Like, what led you into studying that in the first place?
6: Curiosity. And, um, but, you know, Chloe, you, you say you haven't lived through the Cold War, but that's only if you believe the Cold War ended. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. We're A in sudden death twist overtime. At the end.
2: <laughs>
6: <laughs> Did the Cold War not end? Well, that's for everybody to decide. I mean, <laughs> and whether or not the U.S. won, if you have, well, we'll save that, right? Don't save it. No. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we have the former head of the KGB who basically has the President of the United States on puppet strings, so I don't know who won the Cold War anymore, right? And if it's over yeah. or not, right?
5: Yeah, you bought a ticket to truth, folks. <laughs> yes. I, I've noticed something recently, because I was talking to my wife about what would happen when the bombs dropped, because I grew up in Seattle, And we all knew uh, we all knew (laughs) that we would be the first ones obliterated because because uh, Boeing was there and they make airplanes. That's what we told ourselves. And then I was talking to my wife and she said, oh, no, it's this it's this one grocery store in the Chicago suburbs that would be the one to get hit first. She grew up in the Chicago suburbs. And I was like the suburbs. She said, yeah, they wouldn't hit downtown Chicago because then they would waste half the the blast radius on the lake so it would be in the suburbs so it could just wipe out everything and we looked at a map and it was this grocery store and then i was i was talking to john roderick uh the singer from the long winters and he grew up in alaska and he said oh no for sure it was in alaska because we were the closest to russia and there are air force bases i was talking to my friend katie who grew up in Nebraska. Guess what? That's where they were going to hit Everybody I know. And so today, I went and looked up the actual nuke targets. You can take a look at this. And some of them aren't surprising. Pentagon, you know, NORAD. But then, Eastern Nebraska, right around Omaha. (laughs) Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. Like, Somewhere in Hawaii because there's like a transmitter there or there's one in coastal Maine. I got hit twice in, in the Seattle area, nothing about the Chicago suburbs. But good news, everybody, we're going to be the ones in the desolate post-nuclear wasteland here in Minnesota because we're not getting hit at all. Yeah. And, but it was really this death wish, I think. Like this generational, like, let me die immediately rather than roam the charred grounds that once were Earth. <laughs> or so maybe
3: that it's, like, it's like fun to be a little dramatic. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm for sure going to be the one to right. die first. Right. Well, it was
5: ego thing, too. Like, right. clearly, we're the most important community. <laughs> we pose the greatest threat, us children, to the Soviets.
6: So nobody had any fun in the Cold War? I mean, you know, no. I mean, for me growing up, Cold War was all about opportunity. I mean, it started when I was about nine, and I got my first and, and last until tonight opportunity to be part of showbiz when I was on a international cultural exchange television show hosted by Milton Berle, if anybody remembers oh. who he was, Uncle yeah. Um And I got to play a little girl from the U.S. and a little girl from Russia with a whole bunch of other little girls who got to do the same thing. And we got to be out of school for about a week where we learned four words of Russian that we could sing. Because <laughs> well, when
0: we are talking, are you from Los Angeles? Originally? I am Is
6: from right? Los Angeles. Yeah.
0: And y- and your father like uh, worked with Groucho Marx?
6: Yes, my father wrote yeah. for Groucho Marx. Yeah. You know, the Cold War opened up a lot of funding for education, which, um, you know, in order to beat the uh, Russians in, in the world of smarts. And so people my age got to go to college and get government fellowships to study whatever we wanted. It didn't have to be science, and it certainly wasn't science for me, but we got money. Um, But before that, there were the bomb shelters, right?
0: Yeah, sure. Um. Uh,
6: They might have scared you, but in my high school, bomb shelters weren't really about being scared. It was about you knew everyone who had one and when their parents weren't home. (laughs) Make-out sesh. The Cold War worked
5: out great for you.
6: (laughs) You you weren't bothered by the, the...
5: nuclear apocalypse angle of it. You're probably happy it's still going. Hey. <laughs> hey. hey,
2: was
3: for minute. the good old days. She's yeah. got a
5: framed picture of Brezhnev. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Who is Brezhnev?
2: <laughs>
5: he was a Soviet premier in uh, the 60s and 70s. And then after Brezhnev, they had a series of rapidly dying premieres. Uh, Chernyenko and Andropov um, and they, whenever they had, would die, the Soviets would say uh, the chairman just has a cold, and then they would, were burying him. Uh, the
3: chairman and, Bobby is cold. Yeah, and, and so so then
5: uh, that led to Gorbachev, who was younger. And if you don't know Gorbachev, you got. I, I know him thank because you. we okay.
3: both have birthmarks. Okay, that's our. You're part oh, of a did club. Did you not notice? <laughs> Uh, look me up on Google.
0: <laughs> I'm glad we're, we touched on bomb shelters, too, because uh, especially, Elaine, your book, Homeward Bound, it's about all kinds of ways that U.S. families were sort of part of the containment strategy on a, on a family level, and one of them was this shelter stuff. And we also we have a few multimedia things, because you're here. So I think that's very exciting. But uh, could we get Image 2? Image 2 would be great, because the bomb shelters were apparently, like, fun. And one of the ways they were fun is it was a romantic situation uh, in like wider pop culture. This is Life Magazine in 1959 celebrating a couple spending two whole weeks in the bomb shelter for their honeymoon because what a romantic cold war we all had. What a time.
3: And now that is officially a kink.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Back then it was the biggest fucking marriage test you've ever, ever seen. (laughs) If you come out of there and both parties are alive, it's going to be a hell of a marriage.
3: Now people are like, I'm into bunker play. (laughs)
0: And it makes me wonder about that time. Like, how conscious were people of the almost romantic overtones of this preparation for, uh, you know, nuclear war?
6: (laughs) The sheltered honeymooners here, uh, they have a really interesting story. They were a couple in Florida, and um, they did this as a, you know, as a stunt, obviously. Um, It was published in Life magazine, and they were asked to do it they, they did this as as a stunt, obviously, uh, but they did it, and then they were promised that they could go on a real honeymoon afterwards. Oh. so this wasn't in the story, but came out later on. so they they did this for two weeks, and then uh, the company that I don't know made the shelter or something um, paid for them to have a real honeymoon in Mexico. In a Mexican
5: bomb shelter.
6: (laughs) (laughs) But the interesting thing is, at least about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, when I saw this article in uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, actually, it did a follow-up on these two. And they were still married at the time. Their children thought that the sheltered honeymoon was the weirdest thing they had ever heard. (laughs) But uh, they were still together, and they remembered it uh, as a kind of wacky thing to do. But they, they lived to tell the tale. What, what oh, strikes amazing. me
5: about these shelters is it, it seems like a sort of coping theater more than it seems like a strategy. <laughs> Much like the duck and cover drills. Like, did people think if I have this, I'm going to be fine? Or was it more of like a, I don't know, like an art piece <laughs> sort of thing?
6: Not that many people actually built these things. Maybe, uh, you know, there's really no way to know, but the estimates I've read were somewhere, I don't know, 60,000 that they actually found and count somebody found and counted. Uh, there was a little spurt at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis because people did get scared. How much people really thought they would protect them is another question. They may have felt that they could have been protected against fallout. I mean, I don't well, know why else they would have Don't they actually? Them.
3: I mean, the duck and cover I've always felt like, yeah, desk is not going to do anything. But bomb shelters, like, I have been sold on bomb shelters. I've been sold on bunkers that those <laughs> would actually do something. What would they do? Protect you from, from the bomb. Well... <laughs> you know when the bomb goes off then like stuff flies around and you're underground and so you don't get hit by all the stuff and uh, maybe
6: if you're in another country it might save you another country from where the bomb is falling I mean um, you're gonna
5: need to return your bomb shelter yeah <laughs>
6: I was tricked maybe I mean you know I think it really is uh, part of what people call security theater you know That, um, you know, these are all kind of rituals of security to make you feel like you're safe, even if they don't do anything. Kind of like taking off your shoes at the airport and going through those metal things. All of that at the airport, by the way, is all security theater. It doesn't do anything to make you any safer. In (laughs) fact, no, there really is a security expert who was interviewed for City Pages some years ago, and he's written books about this stuff. He says there's only one thing, one thing that actually makes people Safer when they fly from uh. you know from terrorism, and what would that be? It's certainly not anything that happens in the airport. It happens to be closing the door of the cockpit, well, and locking it.
0: Do they do that all the time, or or no?
5: I thought they, they didn't used <laughs> to. <laughs> they didn't used to. It's a. I mean, it's since since nine right. eleven, they have. But right. before that, they no. didn't. Sometimes well, they would fly so with st- wait, with the door open. You're
3: telling me you're telling me that doors protect against terrorists but bomb shelters don't protect against bombs yes I'm, that's exactly I what i'm like saying a terrorist could get through a door well bombs yeah. don't
5: use doorknobs
3: ah. yeah. yes they don't have opposable thumbs
5: <laughs> right right you used to be able to look right into the cockpit just by leaning into the aisle and oh. we wore an onion on our belt as was the fashion of the day <laughs> My, my neighbors across the street when I was growing up, yeah. we, I grew up around a lot of Mormon families, and they had, all the Mormon families had a sort of bunker, sort of like a, a dugout area where they had canned goods to get ready for the end of, I mean, the kids would say, well, the world's ending soon, and we're going to be ready because yeah. we have all this canned corn. And... <laughs> And, and like uh, you as, know, as you describe that, let's get image number three if we can. Oh, yeah, okay. Them, yeah. Ooh, It'll, what's it gonna be? Give, give him a sec. But, yeah. it's just
3: a face of somebody who is in the El- church of building. El- <laughs> <laughs> just a Mormon.
0: Just
5: all loaded up on corn. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because that's
0: the honeymoon couple with everything they were bringing down for the, yeah. the two weeks, just spread out on the lawn behind them.
3: They're so hungry.
5: <laughs> they love for whatever. Home, whatever so that one cans. can is. They they sure dig it. <laughs> but Literally. I mean, But these families were always very cheerful, and they were always very happy and, and close, and I didn't really understand them, and I felt threatened by them. And so I always thought, like, when the bombs come, which are surely on the way, do I run across the street to the Wilkerson's house? And then I think, well, would I rather hang out with the Wilkerson's and eat canned corn for the rest of my life or be obliterated instantly. <laughs> I hope
3: none of the Wilkersons are listening to this I, podcast. <laughs> yeah. But I,
5: I, I chose <laughs> annihilation. I'm like, oh, yeah. That does
0: make this next guest awkward. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if they, come on out. Uh, <laughs> they're all here. <laughs> Just seven more mics, bro. Um, <laughs> I need a ton of microphones. <laughs> Because that does, it does seem like a limit on bomb shelters being any good as an idea is just being able to feed yourself down there or survive, or there was but a...
3: But they only, in my head, okay, when I bought my bomb shelter, <laughs> yeah, right.
5: I was Sta- like, this only state needs... State fair purchase, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> right, it was an impulse buy. Sure. <laughs> Sure, put it in. Next to the pool. Uh, no, I just have that little plastic cover over the pool. I also mm. have a pool. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a house, but I do live in the pool. You just
5: swim <laughs> constantly. No,
3: but a bomb shelter only needs to last you like three days, right? Like the bomb goes off.
5: Oh, I guess It doesn't
3: so. even need to last you three days. It needs to last you like a day. They didn't need all those cans. You just like wait the five hours.
5: Now, I'm no scientist. The nuclear
3: winds <laughs> die down. You walk out, and you have all your corn.
5: I... I have a theater degree, but I've been told that, that radiation can linger slightly longer. Okay,
2: five days. <laughs> all
3: right, all right.
5: As a player of Fallout New
0: Vegas, I think I can explain <laughs> very rapidly. No, uh,
3: That's the applause break? I hate you people.
0: <laughs> I play video games. I'm, I'm as surprised as you are, but let's keep going. Uh... But because um, like feeding people for that long time, there was some kind of government project where they tried to develop a superfood cracker. Uh, that we could fill bomb shelters with, and the government-funded production of 20 billion of these superfood crackers from a specific kind of wheat by 1964. Is this and why we
3: have quinoa now? <laughs> 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 it's just leftover from the Cold War. <laughs> it's like, this tastes like shit, but we'll still eat it, whatever. <laughs> Sorry you love quinoa. <laughs>
2: Sorry, continue.
3: No, no.
0: Uh, well, and they um, most of them did go uneaten. Apparently, they don't taste good. But also, there wasn't yeah, the war, was you know, so we don't need it. And a few were sent to disaster victims in the seventies because they were like, "Well, we got this." What was and in the cracker? I didn't understand the article very well, but it was some kind of weird kind of wheat that they felt would not keep you, like, super healthy, but keep you alive in a very right. uh, uh, direct way. You know, you and the Wilkerson's can just chow down, you know. Right. And, and there uh, was a time traveler from our day
5: saying, but I have celiac. I get... <laughs> <laughs> Is there another option? <laughs> they buried
0: so many of these crackers that apparently construction crews and inspectors and stuff just find them from time to time. And why so in 2000, they, they buried them? In 2006, there were people doing a routine inspection of the Brooklyn Bridge and there was some kind of chamber in there for surviving nukes and they found a bunch of old tins of these crackers and like one brave parks person tried it and was like, that is very salty. Uh, that was like their whole takeaway.
5: Is they that salty. Is
3: that uh, apartment in the Brooklyn Bridge for rent? <laughs> Like, like in, in a world full
5: of non potable water, <laughs> let's put extra salt on these motherfuckers. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Wait, Elaine, do you know? Do you know why they made those? Cra- I mean, like other than just or why they buried the crackers?
0: They were yeah, they were just <laughs> in some kind of tins and and hidden places, and and the idea was we'll just t- when when the bombs strike, we will live on these crackers we until. Are the Squirrels? World. <laughs>
6: yeah. <laughs> no, no. No, you know, I mean it was it was the era of the cake mix. It was the era of the T V dinners, you know. You could either put oh, it yeah. you, whatever it was, you could fix it, you could put it in the freezer, you could put it in the fridge, you could mix it with water and and eat it and or you could put it in your public bomb shelter and it's yeah. the
5: Levitown dream of a new America.
6: <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's the a, it's the prefabricated meal, right? <laughs> when and prefabricated and pre-hidden <laughs>
3: Ah, are you hungry in the post-apocalypse? Go dig everywhere <laughs> See if you find a tin of crackers Try salty
5: shit crackers, only by the government
3: <laughs> <laughs> And maybe you won't find them
5: <laughs> It's like a game, it's like a scavenger hunt
3: It distracts you from your ultimate death <laughs>
0: And uh, and you mentioned Levittown. What a good uh, thing to get into. Uh, Elaine Homeward Bound brings up a lot about, if nothing else, like the suburbs being kind of a defensive strategy. Like apparently there was a Bulletin of Atomic Scientists hot periodical again, where they uh, they said that we could do. I thought
3: you were saying the name of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was Hot Periodical. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want that to be the name. <laughs>
5: That's the atomic scientist singles magazine.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> but it was it was
0: uh, like an actual. They called it defense through decentralization. Was something we could do by uh, just fully spreading the population out to the suburbs, so it's harder to like hit those cities that we talked about. Like like, why did they think that would help? Why Wait, did they think that would be like a useful thing at
5: all? I don't know. That was the plan to make <laughs> suburbs to decentralize populations.
6: That was one. Oh, one plan. I'm I'm putting too much um, on it. Okay, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I mean, to say that the suburbs were all built as a massive civil defense strategy, I think, is taking it a little far. But definitely, definitely, the Interstate Highway Act was a, a Cold War measure. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right. That was Eisenhower's thing. So that if, you know, wherever you lived, if you were in the city or in the suburb, as long as you had a car... And you could get out of the city. You could get out fast on the interstate highway.
2: Yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> that's what they thought at the time. They, you know, they haven't they haven't been on the 405 in LA for a while. You don't know the 405 in LA. Somebody was it, does. The it parking lot,
5: Elaine. Was it also with the with Eisenhower the idea of moving like missiles and moving military equipment on the interstate? Because that's why I remember it being described as could have been. Yeah. Didn't work out so much. Is the Cold
3: War over? Might be. Yeah. <laughs> Elaine's very mysterious. Oh, man.
5: And Elaine's a professor, too, so like you're looking for a definite answer, and she's like, well, what do you think?
6: I'm like, oh. Okay, class, there's going to be a test on this in 25 minutes.
5: Well, I've always felt guilty like driving on the freeway in part because I'm like, there should be a missile here. I'm just taking up space... A missile moving to a better place somewhere in uh let's see maine, I think
6: <laughs> Well, there was a lot of worry about panic, you know, that people would panic, and so they would all be rushing out to the streets at the same time, and that you know the streets and the highways would all get clogged up, and no one could move anywhere, and then the bombs would fall, and everybody's out on the streets and would just get liquidated <laughs> but um, uh, but s- suburbia was, was, a, was a cold war strategy more in the sense of the lifestyle that it yeah. promoted that you know what, what was the cold war you know the cold part of the cold war was a propaganda war uh, there were a lot of hot wars during the cold war so it wasn't a lot really of very hot scientists too yeah. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't really very cold but the cold part was propaganda and what, what was what was the war? It was capitalism versus communism. And what was capitalism, you know, the American way of life. And what was the American life way of life? You had to be white, you had to be middle class, you had to live in the suburbs in a single family home, you had to have a backyard or a basement so that you could put your bomb shelter there. You know, right. so what does that say about everyone who was left in the city who wasn't white, didn't have their own home? You know, couldn't build a bomb shelter. You know, they were sort of, I don't know, collateral damage, I guess, right? (laughs) So there was this idea of the American way of life that was beamed out to the world through, you know, media and everything else and movies and TV and Hollywood. That was what America symbolized, was the home, the the consumer-oriented home, the nuclear family, uh, the heterosexual couple with their children, all of them learning from movies like Bert the Turtle and Duck and Cover, uh, how to survive when they're riding their bicycles down their suburban streets, and, and the flash comes. you know. And Flip. so then they learn what to do.
5: And as the host of a depression podcast, it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> like, the people who grew up in those worlds didn't do all that well. Oh. Really, as a result. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we're all fucked up. <laughs>
0: There's, there's so many amazing things there. For one, uh, Stephanie, if you, want, if you want to pull image number four, that would be great. Because that, that propaganda war was insanely explicit. Like, they really did. It's, it's going to be a picture of the kitchen debate of Nixon and Khrushchev, where they, they just walked through, it was 1959, and uh, they just walked through, like, a model of a kitchen arguing about, well, American uh, microwaves can do this, you know? Uh, well, Soviet yeah, we know ones... Microw- Oh, no microwaves, Washing right. machines. Uh, <laughs> washing machines, Yeah, yes. we put all the food yeah. in the washing machines. But uh, it's amazing that, that that this was as explicit as it was, that they were just like, no, we will we will defeat the enemy, not mainly in Vietnam and Korea, but through like just better uh, uh, production and, and uh, impressing each other. And then they had to stand and uh, argue with each other like that, which is just funny to me. <laughs> well, I really it was, like it. It
5: was sort of a crystallization of these conflicting viewpoints because you're coming off... World War 1 and World War 2 and these shifting alliances that happened in there and treaties and it was all very complex but yeah. but when it's all over people were able to reduce it i think to you know A versus B you know Soviet Union versus USA capitalism communism and it seemed simple so like you could get you could oh. you could go on a tour of a kitchen with these two dudes and have them get into it in front of I it looks like a washing it really machine. It does
3: look like a washing machine.
5: Yeah, it could yeah. be some sort of circular oven. There's also, I'm just noticing. This that, is great <laughs> podcasting, folks. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but. And a sincere
3: fuck off to our listeners <laughs> at home. But,
5: and of course, it, it was never that simple as, as A versus B, but I, I think we were all able to think of it that way.
0: Yeah, I also... Well, for one thing, uh, listeners at home, there will be food notes where you can find this stuff. Uh, but also, I'm just noticing above the washing machine, there's a box of detergent or something where the brand is just called SOS, <laughs>
5: which... <laughs>
3: That's the Russian detergent. Yeah.
5: <laughs> the American detergent was called, Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and then,
0: uh, John, I, hilarious world of depression is amazing. People should hear it. And also in, I guess, your life, but also making that show like... It seems like, especially in the Cold War, we were very, very, very bad at understanding mental health in general. Like, all these things were happening where there were
5: bombs pointed at all the cities yeah. and no one knew how to talk about anything. Well, oh, that I mean, seems it, bad. Yeah, <laughs> it was bad. I mean, it, like, uh, I've often said that when I first had signs of, of mental illness myself, I didn't want to tell anyone because I thought I would have to go into a padded room in a straitjacket because my knowledge of mental health was gleaned from Bugs Bunny cartoons. Um, yeah. and, but at least Bugs Bunny, unlike everybody fucking else, was talking about it. You know? <laughs> like, he was Let's getting talk it.
3: about mental health hero
5: Bugs Bunny. He was getting it wrong. He was getting it wrong, but at least he was talking about it. No, I mean, it, it was... But I think it was a condition of wartime as well. I mean, with the, the Cold War mentality still existing. Like, my parents uh, grew up in Norway during Nazi occupation. And oh, wow. anything that was happening there and there was there was plenty of mental health problems in our family down through the ages, but there was a war to survive, you know, and so there was this this notion of suck it up, move forward. And I mean, the, the problem, of course, is when you suck it up, it's like a vacuum cleaner, like the bag gets full yeah. <laughs> and you're keeping the bag inside so that the trauma was happening and it wasn't getting dealt with and it was going to explode down the line and it did but uh, there's also this mindset of deprioritizing it and not really having the resources because there's a war going on and so i think when world war ii shifted to the nuclear threat and the cold war and and all that it it was still this mentality of like that's not important now stuff it down for later yeah it's a little like you know the national debt (laughs) Or the environment, <laughs> like we'll just deal with it later. The problem is later shows up and wants some answers. Well, and, and even you mentioned William J. Levitt
0: before, who built Levittown. He once said, "Quote: No man who owns his own house and lot can be a communist. He has too much to do." <laughs> and quote. <laughs>
5: uh, I'm too busy to be a communist. Which, look at my to-do list. <laughs>
0: But uh, it seems like maybe it was a whole era of well, we we have pools to fill and uh, shelters to
5: build and I don't know uh, uh, hop socks to dance at and so on and and, so you know that's fine. And there's nothing like a full to-do list to to just try to distract yourself from the trauma. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like if you really want to keep busy, then you don't have to think about it for a while, and then later, of course, you do.
3: You said in wartime. I guess there's a question for both of you. Did it feel like living in wartime?
6: Well, I think it depends on who you asked. You know, some people were closer ah, yes. to wartime <laughs> <It's history laughs> so than others. We're back. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, it didn't feel like wartime to most people during their daily lives, except for when they started to get preoccupied with the kinds of fears that were, you know, generated in, in the, um, you know, in the atmosphere. I mean... I think there were moments like the Cuban Missile Crisis when people really did feel they were living in wartime, when they really felt there was gonna be a nuclear war, that there was gonna be an exchange. And uh, people who were fighting on the ground or who had, who had family members who were still around the world in various places that were still occupied after World War II or in new wars like you know Korea and Vietnam, then it really did feel like a war.
5: And, and coming out of vietnam yeah. too was this phrase the domino effect if, if vietnam falls to communism what else is going to happen and that idea of this thing is going to lead to this other thing was very prevalent like i was maybe 11 or 12 when the soviets invaded afghanistan and that felt like okay this is how it starts you know there are like it's the middle east sort of there's a, you know a series of events are going to start to happen and you know we were boycotting the Olympics in Moscow. This is going to turn. You know this is how it's going to start. This thing I've been waiting to start eventually it will start. And the the logic of you have missiles, eventually you're, they're going to go off. You know you don't have a thing and have it never do the thing. It's it's built to do. Well, sometimes you have children. You have children and they never do what you built them to do. Um, my son is in attendance at the show. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> oh, <what's up>? um, <laughs> As a joke for all the parents yeah. in the audience. Oh, kids. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it was, it was never, I feel like, I'm in wartime, it always felt like wartime was about begin a few ways i feel like the cold war in particular it was made very
0: material literally tangible for kids Uh, for some reason uh, major cities in the 1950s a lot of them printed dog tags for kids and so this was in the event yes ooh, exactly uh in the event of things going wrong they would have uh, uh, blood types and information and so on Uh, new york city bought 2.5 million dog tags in 1952 also, Washington, D.C. bought them from some kind of scammer where they were made of brass which would melt in any explosion. Uh, so, not a patriot, not a sponsor either, you know? We don't like them. I, I, I think that guy's kind of a hero. Like,
5: <laughs> okay. I'm not going to be part of your ghoulish facade. I'm going to. Yeah, but I am going them. to
3: make money off of it, yeah. Correct. Right. It's not a bad scam. What,
5: was the idea to help kids who were injured or were just to identify? bodies
0: i believe both yeah Uh, and then there was also a, a very small thing they tried it was called operation tat type which uh was a the idea was quote a walking blood bank and in uh lake county indiana in 1952 they piloted it and all the school kids had a tiny tattoo under their left arm of their blood type and so i again agreed and so like doing things like that. Wait, so you could snatch a child off the street and drain them?
5: (laughs) Is that the idea? Right, right.
3: Yes, you just open your mouth and latch onto their neck and just...
5: (laughs) I was born at the wrong time.
0: (laughs) But then, well, and like, Elaine, you describe our current security theater. I feel like this is like like real dark theater that doesn't make us safer and and messes with every kid's head. If like if you're being given a dog tag and you're like, why? And they're like, oh, you know, death. And like that's it. Like what the fuck? You know. It seems like this was a whole era of people constantly getting messaging like that well, in really wonder, crazy ways. I wonder
5: how much of it is related to the the term war. And Elaine, maybe you could help me figure this out. But like. I mean, just as we've had the war on terror for so long, which seems to be a war against an emotion.
6: We've had <laughs> wars on everything. We've yeah. had, we had the Cold War. We had the war on poverty, the war on, war drugs, on drugs, the war on what else? Yeah, terror. And, uh,
5: terror and it's, it's, war on terror. And so you can justify these things saying, well, we're, we're in a war.
6: Right. Yeah, well, we usually were.
5: <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs>
6: the one
3: definitive thing. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine will say all night.
5: She couched it with usually, though. All
3: right. <laughs> <laughs> but
6: we There's going to be she, a historian out there who's going to argue with me. But so. we weren't yeah, in a yeah, war. She knows a lot about this.
5: We, we yeah, weren't yeah. in a war yeah. on against drugs or, or <laughs> poverty. I mean, those were issues, but like...
6: War was the word. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, was yeah. that... It gets,
6: it gets people energized. Yeah.
5: We're also... We're currently gripped
0: in the war on Christmas. Uh, you know, a very <laughs> critical <laughs> conflict that... Uh,
5: we're just trying to hang in there with? Yeah. We'll kill Santa one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> that that fucker's red had bastard. Had it, he's had it too easy for too long. That's right. I want to kill Santa. Put that on your podcast. <laughs> I think we just did. Uh, there we go.
0: Many thanks to our friends at Squarespace for their support of everything we're doing here at the Cracked Podcast. And hey, you are a person and people tend to use the internet. Do you have a website to show yourself off yet? Have you, have you arranged that? Have you set that up? If you have not, I think Squarespace is the way to go. If you have, I also think Squarespace is the way to go. So either way, we're talking to you. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers that you can also customize any way you want to set it up to work for you. They also have an e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online. I don't know about you, but I like money. Money is a neat thing. And maybe you can discover the magic of money by selling something online and having exactly the tools you want to have to track how it's going and and who's checking in and seeing your stuff, because Squarespace also has excellent analytics. Uh, even if you're not selling stuff, it's just very fun to look at who's come to your website. Like, oh, someone from Canada. Oh, someone from China, you know, or some other country in the world. I think there are a lot of them. Also, your website will be optimized for mobile, right out of the box, so it will work on tablets and phones. There's also nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Isn't that annoying with like apps and stuff where they're constantly being like, oh, we did bug fixes and improvements, but you'll never know what they are. Your Squarespace website will always be updated to being the best thing it can be, because you never need to patch stuff or fix stuff ever. Squarespace empowers millions of people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked, offer code cracked. were a lot of very strange ways that pop culture was being used to try to uh, hold us together and to try to defeat the Soviets. And in your book, Homeward Bound, Elaine, you pull out the, it was called the Win a Future Contest, which is, it's kind of pop culture kind of propaganda, but it's one of the craziest stories I've ever seen. Uh, Do you want to speak on it?
6: It all started in Italy, because there There was an election where the communists were gaining a lot of traction, and the U.S government was very concerned about that and wanted to keep the communists from taking over Italy and so they started sending care packages with very deliberately labeled that they were from the United States and they were sending them all around Italy to distribute to the Italians to supposedly psychologically bribe them into rejecting communism because communism wouldn't be sending them these whatever these care packages but also in the care packages were these letters that Americans were invited to write, to insert into them, to tell the, the people of Italy why capitalism was great and consumerism was really the way to, to have the good life and that capitalism would provide that and communism would not. And like an the, essay
0: contest. Kind of. Yes, like the and letters. then there was
6: uh, citizens, you There's know. People, volunteers? Citizens who didn't speak Italian. Yeah, <laughs> citizens who wanted to win a future because oh, there I'm was sorry. this okay. contest. Yeah. And the winner of the Win a Future contest would presumably get a house and a car and a house filled with all the goodies that you saw, you know, in the in the kitchen debate in, in yeah. Moscow all on display. This is the American way of life. And so there was this contest and, and a couple did win, but it didn't quite turn out the way it was supposed to. It really wasn't the happy ever after. But uh, What happened? <laughs> <laughs> How did it turn out? Not too well. I mean, they did get this house, but it didn't work out very well for them. I mean, you know, they couldn't really get to work very easily because it was out in the, you know, out in the valley, and they worked in the city and like and, the LA
0: Valley, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. this them. was it was 1948, and they uh, on TV said enter this contest, and 640 thousand people sent in essays, and then, like you say, the essays were forwarded to Italians. Who uh, hopefully spoke English, like I said, <laughs> and uh... exactly. And then In a very well-designed
5: and thought-out scheme. Yeah. They were forwarded to Italians. And the, yeah. and the
0: winners were promised a house and car and job, but they were given it in a really, like, yeah. Notice that we
3: promised the Americans who wrote the letters a house and car and job, <laughs> yes. but not, not the Italians, the Italians who wanted yeah. a house and car and they job. Win yeah. But it was a terrible
6: letter. job for the people who actually won the contest, and, the, and it was also a terrible house and a car that didn't really work either. So it was like... <laughs>
5: I mean it?
3: it, the house had no class. And then it turned
5: out the contest was sponsored by the communists. <laughs> you see, your car it does not work. That's I, Dracula, by the way, weird. that accent. I'm, I'm, a known communist. A known <laughs> co-
3: that red bastard. Yeah. Oh, wake up,
0: America. <laughs> And yeah, and then we had these magazines talking about how great fallout shelters were, Uh, and then also you pick out how movie stars of the time, uh, there was a shift where in the 20s and 30s they were like independent ladies on the town, and then suddenly in the 40s it was, these are wives, and these are ladies who are building the kind of homes that will help a family withstand uh, communism. Uh. Yeah,
6: yeah. (laughs) You know, the, the kind of heroic characters, or the characteristics of heroic Women in the 30s, for example, some of the really popular movies who were independent and strong and feisty and tough, they kind of m- mellowed after the war into the good wife and mother and those same characteristics of being feisty and, and sexy and independent oh, and Elaine. tough. Oh, thank you. They, <laughs> they became the villains, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, no. <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> who who I mean, <laughs> Yeah. Who were the actors who had to oh, tone down their act?
6: Marilyn Monroe, who went from being, you know, in in some early films, you know, really a, a very funny and feisty, and uh, these are also happening at the same time. I mean, there were resistance movies at the same time that there were the, you know, play yeah play yeah. along with with the cultural motif movies. But you know, she was either the sex kitten or she was the the film noir villain. You know, and there were yeah. uh, there were other women. Stars of the time who were who were cast in one role or another, and then the, and then yeah. there was Doctor Strangelove.
2: Yeah, yeah.
6: Oh, I want a show of hands. Who's seen Doctor Strangelove? Applause. Right. Let's make some
0: noise for Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. well, well, just since I got a quote from me here, uh, Betty Davis, who was very independent uh, prior to that, then in 1941 she's being interviewed about, among other things, it was don't be afraid to be a prude. And uh, the quote here is, good sports get plenty of rings on the telephone, but prudes get them
5: on the finger. And that was... That's wild. That was the best acting of Betty Davis's life. She didn't believe any of that <laughs> shit.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, Joan Crawford was, like, suddenly being photographed ironing all the time, and magazines would call it the real Joan Crawford, ironing.
3: Um, were communist women seen as, like feisty and independent and cool and funny and, you know, like, awesome and somebody you'd want to be friends with and have a big birthmark on their face and, like, cool, you know, (laughs) smart
6: and humble. So what, what you didn't hear in that picture of the kitchen debate with Nixon and Khrushchev having this debate is that, yes, they were arguing about consumer products, and no, they were not really arguing about types of governments or who had the best weapons or who had the best rockets for exploring outer space but mostly what they argued about was who had the best women they really did oh, wow. that was a theme in the kitchen debate and it I hate men
2: <laughs> <laughs> so fucking much That's yeah
6: and she, so but it really gets to this very question because Richard Nixon kept saying We have these great consumer products and appliances to make life better for our women, to make life better for our housewives. And those two words, women and housewives, were interchangeable. They were like synonyms, right? And the whole idea of a woman was she was a housewife and her life was gonna be made easy and lovely because she had these appliances that gave her all this free time to run around after her children and, and change diapers and things like that. But what Khrushchev said in answer to that was, quote, we don't have that capitalist view of women. And then he went on to say, he said that. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, of cheering for Khrushchev said that. in this house. Uh, all right. <laughs> and, then, and then he went on to say that the women of the Soviet Union, they were... Tough and strong and independent, and they were out working side by side with their men in the factories and in the industries, and making Soviet union strong and they weren't these wimpy well he didn't use that word, but they weren't they weren't these powerless. housewives who were who were confined to their homes, just doing meaningless housework, just using their their appliances but Of course, what we know is that in both countries, women were one they were all out there in the paid labor force because Soviet women, like American women, had to help bring in money to support the family. And women during these years of the highlighted housewife, uh, they were actually out in the paid labor force. And secondly, we also know that they were all doing double duty. The Soviet women and the American women would come home and have to do all of the laundry, make the dinner, take care of the kids, and had all the domestic chores too. So in actual life, their lives were not that all different but in the ideology they had very very different ideas about what wow. women did
3: Can I just say for the record I live in New York City and I would frankly rather have a washer and dryer than a boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> and If you have to
5: work in a factory to get it <laughs> Honestly fine Okay <laughs> Well that I mean what I keep thinking about too is like capitalism and communism are are terms that are complicated terms and I don't think people spend a lot of time thinking about like well this is what a capital driven economy looks like this is you know this is what happens when the state is larger and you know the communal it it just seems like Yankees versus Red Sox to a certain extent like I I don't remember people putting a lot of thought into economic theory during this time and any kind of similarities but I think what, what followed though like You have two leaders arguing in a kitchen over what's superior. What what that I think gave rise to was in the 80s this sort of vapid we're all sisters and brothers let's do an exchange trip to Russia and, and hold hands kind of thing. Yeah. You
6: know, I did that in 1957 on television <laughs> with Uncle Miltie. Yeah, that's right. We all held hands and sang and danced.
5: Yeah, but, but neither, neither... That was in
6: the midst of the Cold War. It was one of those cultural moments, you know? Like, you like, Both like the kitchen yeah. debate.
5: Elaine, you're really holding on to this, aren't you? You're I really. am indeed.
6: It was my moment of glory. Everything's been downhill ever since. <laughs>
0: When that it and that's amazing that like we, we like you say, we think of those two sides as so split, but they could have come together on we're kind of sexist and we have like similar economies in some ways and we all those aren't great things as
5: a bridge, <laughs> but we got something, you know? We're all comrades. Hey. We all have missiles and we subjugate women like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> But I'm not pro sexism. I don't know what that reaction was, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, let's
3: do feet to the fire here. Definitely. Boy, oh boy! But I remember, uh, yes or no?
5: <laughs> I remember too, though. Like, like Doctor Strangelove was was fantastic and and such a smart and kind of and not even all that cynical of a movie. Just sort of a, a brave movie, I thought. But I remember when Red Dawn came out. Oh yeah. Wolverines. Wolverines. <laughs> and and the, I felt like that was when things got really cynical because I I watched that with my friends we were maybe like 15 years old or so at the time and like I didn't know a single person who bought into it. Like we all went oh. there for the camp value of it. And then, you know, oh, wow. the Rambo movies and everything. And like, I mean, Red Dawn is a movie that is Based on the premise that when the Soviets invaded, it would be in central Colorado, right, right, and then fan out from there. You say
3: that like it's crazy, but the Rockies are beautiful. Well, the Rockies are beautiful.
5: I would just think maybe someone would see the plane coming at some at some point. Um, but it, it it struck me that like in that kind, of, you know it's easy to kind of gloss it over but in a post watergate world where everything had become a little more suspect right th- that that there was a lot of eye rolling about that kind of 80s to 90s era of of uh american cold war propaganda cuz it it is so
0: strange that suddenly red dawn and rambo movies all these things came around so we'd have like Movies where we're individuals defeat communism because <laughs> because it was they were all in the mid eighties like eighty four eighty five for Red Dawn and and uh, uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two and so like the the war was almost over right like yeah. we, maybe we didn't know but
6: well, we were
5: we about had, to yeah, win yeah we didn't know yeah but then Rambo was in Vietnam but yeah. then he was going back to Vietnam and, right and, to and win that it is, later that yeah. movie
6: has the most bizarre premise why <laughs> ten years after the Americans lost the war in Vietnam, why are the Vietnamese holding on and torturing these prisoners that Rambo has to come and save? I mean, the logic of the film (laughs) is so (laughs) completely bizarre. It it makes... (laughs) It makes absolutely no sense, right? I mean, and is it, it more was, bizarre
5: than discussing the logic of the film Rambo? Well,
6: that's what I'm saying. You know, we got you know, we're Americans. We have to talk about these bizarre pop culture right. things. But Rambo yeah. was like an international, massive hit. Yeah. I mean, all over the world, all over Asia. Even though it's so racist, I mean, it's just
0: <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Well, even, I remember also, like, uh, seeing GoldenEye, uh, the Bond movie, in 95, and they're very fixated on, like, uh, in GoldenEye, basically, the Soviet Union's about to happen again, somehow. Like, it's just everybody's an ex-Russian who's about to, like, roll out the Lenin statues again and get it going again. And, and I, I was very thrown, because I, I, I was very little, and didn't know that was a thing anymore. It was like, why
5: are we doing this? Well, they rebooted Roseanne, so... <laughs> I've always wondered the extent to which the movies and the TV and like stuff like The Day After, remember The Day After, was a reflection of the cultural anxiety around those issues, and then how much it then exacerbated that anxiety. Right. Like maybe we're, we're whipped up about this thing, so we make a movie about how whipped up we are, and as a result, everybody's more whipped up than they already were.
6: Yeah. I think that the whole civil defense effort really did nothing more than create more fear instead of, instead of reassurance. But there's always, the, the back door is always humor. And Dr. Strangelove is the best example of that that I can think of. But in the U.S., the Cold War humor was always about sex. In the Soviet <laughs> Union, it was about death. And I know this because, for example, one of the most widely circulated jokes in the Soviet Union And I now heard Uh this from two different people at two different international conferences. The same joke, because it was clearly going around. You know, sort of the flip side of the duck and cover where, you know, if you see the flash, you try to save yourself, right? So in the Soviet Union, what do you do when you see the flash? You grab the sheet that's closest to you, and you throw it over you, and you get down on your hands and knees, and you crawl to the nearest Cemetery, and the answer—the joke isn't over yet. The answer oh. to that part of the joke is, why crawl? And the response is, to prevent a stampede. Right. So, I heard this. Holy cow! I heard this from two from two very different sources, and Honestly, one of them—pretty
3: good joke, And yeah. one of them,
6: I have to say, one of them was Nikita Khrushchev's son. <laughs> who, you know the Cold War is over, if it is, yeah. when Ma- Nikita when Khrushchev's son <laughs> comes to the U.S., teaches in an American university and becomes an American citizen and tells these jokes. And you also know when the Cold War is over when Dwight D. Eisenhower's granddaughter marries a former Soviet physicist so you know on the ground there's these there's these relationships that are developing but I I don't think we have we have grim grim stories like the day after the flip side of those are like Dr. Strangelove and all of the jokiness the atomic cafe and um, the anatomic bomb and all of these you know, sexualized images of the Cold War, but in the Soviet Union, Cold War humor is about death.
3: Which is why the parody of Red Dawn, Red Dong, is not a porn, it's a comedy.
2: <laughs>
5: so, <laughs> well, I
3: thought of Red Dong like half an hour. Oh, yeah. Ago.
5: yeah. Oh man.
2: <laughs>
3: so
5: first of all, that was any, good. That was good. anybody who thinks they have a dark sense of humor, you ain't shit compared to all Soviets. Yeah. <laughs> we can we can learn that from that lesson right there. Yeah, our tour show in
0: Moscow is going to be fucked up. Oh, man. It's going to be crazy. There's another uh, uh, fun image here. Can we get image number five, Stefan? Because uh, that overall thing of the Cold War being very heavy on like sexual content and vibes and, and stuff, this is uh, uh, from a civil defense pamphlet and also from Elaine's book, where it's a warning about kinds of radioactive rays. And so it's three, like, three sexy ladies. Uh, it's an illustration. But they're all in sashes of what, like, isotope it is.
5: Alpha, and beta, and gamma.
6: Yeah, those are invisible rays, you know? So if you're, um, if you're a, a government civil defense bureaucrat and yeah. you're writing a pamphlet for the public on fallout and you want them to understand about fallout and you're giving them all these instructions. How do you illustrate fallout if these are not microscopic basically invisible rays that cannot be seen with the naked eye and hardly even under a microscope. So from what
5: I understand if you have alpha rays you're going to be pulling your own hair out (laughs) beta rays your head will become dislodged and roll onto your shoulders and gamma rays she looks fine. Yeah, she's okay.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's th-
6: how she gets you. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'll go with gamma, I guess. <laughs> what's the, but what's, what's not up here on the screen is what the illustration, the text next to the illustration says, that fallout is made up of alpha, beta, and gamma rays. There they are, ladies and gentlemen. Dangerous. Women. Dangerous. Dangerous. However, they can be dangerous if they're used for weapons and if they make bombs. But if they're harnessed for peace, if they're harnessed for peace, they can make life yeah. a lot better, right?
5: <laughs> Wait, so, 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 what's the message? Don't marry marry play them. in the fallout. Marry them. <laughs> marry yeah. them. Marry and them. The, yes.
6: Oh, marry I took them. that in
3: a very BDSM direction.
5: <laughs> yeah. I don't think these are the kind of gals you marry. Mm. Oh,
6: but then, but see, oh. then they become not good girls. really head
5: girl anyway. <laughs> uh. yeah, they're always having a
0: proper head up. <laughs> when we are, and we're at that point in the show where I, I know this show is about a lot of different things, but if any of you have, uh, it could be stories for you remember or have been told from the Cold War or yeah, just if like any facts of you, have you find exes are that have really
3: screwed you up, right? <laughs>
0: The microphone's over there. We, all, we already have. Minnesotans are so nice. They are like, yes, we will do this right away. Um, but, uh, uh, but give us your name, and, the, and then uh, let's uh, hear that story. It sounds great. Go ahead.
4: Okay, my name's Annalisa. Hi, Annalisa. Uh, my grandfather actually made the infamous uh, nuclear bomb cake that if anybody knows about. Um, I don't know that cake. <laughs> it's actually been featured in a cracked video, uh, YouTube video. Oh, YouTube No. Video. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, right okay. now. <laughs> Sorry, Alex.
0: It's going to be okay. It's her podcast now. Um, no, no, go ahead. Yeah. I
4: win the ca- podcast. <laughs> um, so it was a cake made for an admiral who was involved in the Manhattan Project, I believe. Oh, cool. But uh, it was a very large mushroom cloud cake <laughs> that he delivered to Washington, D.C., and the whole United States wins absolutely nuts. Uh, there was, and there's a clip of a newspaper article of him being like, yeah, I have all these newspaper clippings from the Times Magazine and a Russian magazine. Wow. And uh, at one point he said, um, he was kind of a dick. Uh, he was like, <laughs> uh, "He's," he I didn't know him, but I can say he was a dick. Uh, so he said, I don't know, maybe next time I'll make a Sputnik cake, then I'll be criticized or not. And so he, wow. he like really didn't give a shit that people were mad about this mushroom cloud cake. That's your uncle like,
5: the cake dick. Yeah, yeah. No, he was
4: my grandfather. grandfather direct descendant dick, of yeah. the cake czar dick or whatever. So yeah, look it up. Uh, nuclear bomb mushroom cloud cake.
0: That's a, round of applause for Annalisa. That's amazing.
7: Uh, next, uh, next person with a story. Give us your name. Hi, my name is Joe. Hey, Joe. So you guys talked about like communism and socialism with uh, women and kind of how that worked. And as a man, I would like to talk about women and socialism a little bit. (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, um, no, it's fine. No, There's a book called Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. And one of the things is that women have better sex, but men don't. And the reason is, is that Like, one of the reasons is that since everyone kind of gets a fair shake or, like, you know, there's, like, universal basic income, a lot of people get all of their needs provided for them, women don't have to choose crappy men who have a better job. And men, alternatively, have to develop, like, a personality and be nice. (laughs) Rather than, like... Rather than just rely on their capital gains, you know.
6: (laughs) (laughs) That book is the best argument for American feminists to go socialist feminist.
3: (laughs) Or for women to just stop fucking mediocre men.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was amazing. Great. Uh, One more time for Joe. Yeah, please.
8: And uh, next person. Hi, I'm TJ. Hey, TJ. Hey, so you guys were talking about the uh, first strikes during the Soviet Union, how we all grew up with that, right? So yeah. I grew up here in the Twin Cities. And what I was told is that we were a first strike target. And oh. we were a first strike target for the uh, rail yards in North Minneapolis. It's <laughs> <laughs> all that damn wheat. Just moving through there. Just had to take it out first. Uh, so, we did a project in my seventh grade classroom mapping out the Twin Cities and a likely megaton strike at the North Minneapolis rail yards and what our percentage of survival was depending on where your house was.
0: Wow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What grade was that? Seventh grade. Seventh grade. How about that? I mean,
5: people cried. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> and now we know it's Mickey's Diner in downtown St. Paul.
3: <laughs> it was just the distance from the rail yards that was your likelihood of...
8: Yeah, so you could, apparently, as a so seventh grader... So literally the project was
3: just like, draw some
5: circles.
8: Well, we colored the circles.
5: <laughs> uh, so, uh, so this like project that involved math and research started with just...
8: A a premise pulled out of somebody's ass. (laughs) Like, (laughs) how did the rail yards thing... I th- we, we were learning this is in social studies in 7th grade and they were talking about the cold war and how we were all part of it <laughs> this and Minneapolis was like you said a first strike that was bl- it blew my mind to hear what you guys year say was that this? what this? Uh, I'm sorry this would have been you. 1987? sounds
5: about right I, this is a story <laughs> this is a story I mean to do for this American life one day about how everybody believes they were going to be the first ones hit but I will yeah. never ever get around to it so just imagine I've done it it was really good <laughs> Yeah, round of applause for that episode, my God.
2: It round
0: blew of me away. applause for his <laughs> So much therapy. easier than reporting the fucking story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and give it up for Joe. Uh, uh, TJ, I'm sorry, TJ. That was an amazing story.
1: My name's Nate. Hey Nate. Hey Nate. Uh, so I got an anecdote that involves both fallout shelters and the patriarchy and misogyny in general. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when I was uh, in, I want to say 10th or 11th grade, so like late 90s, I had a really awesome world history teacher. Shout out to Mr. Shepard at Watertown High School in South Dakota, who took us to the high school fallout shelter. Like, uh, the best field trip I've ever been on. uh, But basically, we had a fallout shelter underneath our school. And it was a pretty massive place. Like, you could literally fit, like, about 20 to 50 families in that shelter. We go down there. It's obviously abandoned because it's been years. There's a thin layer of dust everywhere. But there is one product that we see all over the place. These little blue boxes in a 70s, 60s, like, match game-esque font. And we're, like, we're picking these things up wondering, what the hell are these things? Tampons. Oh. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tampons oh. still in this fallout shelter after years of neglect and we're just kind of like in our heads going okay you're you empty this thing out you took out all of, like the perishable food items oh, right? so. <laughs> the you know the sandbags the water <laughs> fuck fuck the women needing tampons let's just leave leave them in here they're not gonna need these i mean i don't Right, those Should aren't a
0: resource. Yeah, whatever. <laughs>
3: Although, if in high school I knew that there were hundreds of tampons in an accessible place in high school, my life in high school would have been so much better. you <laughs> would be like, oh, fuck, I'm wearing white jeans. Oh, I'll just go downstairs. Yeah. I'm just
1: assuming...
5: I gotta uh, leave. There's a nuclear war. Uh, bye.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just assuming the men didn't want to bother hauling it out. That's yeah, my, right. That's my rationale. <laughs> Nate, what a, great,
0: what a great story. Thanks Thank for you. that. That's awesome. I'm also I'm curious, just like a plot or something, if you knew like your high school or other place around you had a fallout shelter around you. Wow. Because I would in, in New York once in a while I would see a sign and it's like a radiation sign that maybe you see. Them I too, see. But, yeah, yeah, I see
3: signs on buildings that just say. I think they say fallout shelter and yeah. it's like a little radioactive sign, which is a confusing mixed mixed messages there. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and
5: never any indication where in the building it is or how to no. reach it. Yeah. <laughs> which I
3: assume just means it's the
5: basement. Yeah, probably not the top floor. <laughs> 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 Alright, John <laughs>
0: I'm a <brain> with you
3: <laughs>
0: Also, I think since we'll have time take your time with it, but Stefan, image number 8 would be great, and then uh, next story here at the mic
9: uh, Hi, I'm Natalia Hi, I Natalia I don't know if you can tell by my name, but I'm the daughter of two Russian immigrants <laughs> <laughs> Whoa.
0: round of applause for some Russian, that was great
9: <laughs> Um, So, both of my grandparents derived uranium in the deserts of Uzbekistan, which was a little awkward to bring up during learning about the arms race in AP Euro. (laughs) Uh. So, yeah, when my parents immigrated here, they were so shocked to learn that Americans were in such a tizzy about the Cold War. They were like, guys, like, the Russians all died already in the last two world wars. We weren't really that concerned about it. You guys... (laughs) And they're like, you guys were like hiding under desks and building bunkers? That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. So now my uh, my dad's just a programmer who works from home and pets a cat slowly like an ultimate James Bond villain. So I think... So what you're saying
3: is Russians are the bad ones.
5: now we wait Um, i did
9: also want to say one thing about um women in russia which is that while everyone was still a misogynist asshole at home women were had access to stem education that still isn't available in the u.s like i mean my grandma Uh. and grandfather both derived uranium and she was also a highly regarded intellectual and like my mom went to a specialized math institute and just that kind of like mass education of women on that scale like yeah. in STEM at the college level like my parents couldn't believe that like you know only like what like 10% of women like study programming here in the US like it's crazy so what you're saying is russians are the
3: good guys
5: this <laughs> 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 sounds like one of elaine's lectures <laughs> <laughs>
3: wait i have a question though so you're saying so you were saying that your your parents were surprised at how freaked out people were about the Cold War it, because, am I understanding this correctly, because
9: Russians sort of felt like, look, we're not really a threat? Is that... Is yes, it, no, 100%. They were like, we can't even produce coats to survive our own winters. We're not going to actually kill any wow. Americans. How like. did...
3: But, so what did your grandparents think of it? Because they were a part of, from our perspective, they were a part of the Cold War effort, You know, of the, of the Russian effort to win the Cold War. Do you know
9: how they felt um, about that? Yeah. I think for my grandparents, maybe the threat was a little more real. Like, more, sure. s- you know, before... They like, were like, we're doing good work. Like, Khrushchev is like part of Thaw era, which is like, they're like, we're softies now. We're like, we can't really hurt anyone. But before then, they were like, okay, we probably will kill our entire population in order to hurt the U.S. So maybe it's a real threat.
1: Wow.
0: Oh, wow.
3: Whew. Give it up for Natalia. That's amazing. <laughs> But so, I'm death is imminent for everyone
5: well, in the whole world. That's, that's been going on for a long time. But I, I, I th- I'll never die. I, I think, too, though, that we, we should point out that it was in the American best interest in, in terms of business in terms of the economy and defense contractors, defense subcontractors to make the Soviets as terrifying as possible. Sure, and yeah. to not not so much report back to the U.S. on the massive available STEM education because shit needed to be built and people needed to make a lot of money off and of
3: it. And sort of to that yeah. end, similar, you know, when you're talking about both of you were talking about how panic was only elevated by movies about the Cold War by propaganda, or you know, in U.S. propaganda about the Cold War. Maggie. Magnified by it, and that that only benefits uh, all of the people who are benefiting from this effort. Yep. Did I just say that? I don't know.
0: No, no, I think that, that's absolutely true. And uh, off of the fallout shelter story before, but speaking of other <laughs> industries and things they found to do, folks in Nebraska, <laughs> they tried out a fallout shelter for cows. Um, this, if you can't read it, this is a, a magazine called Nebraska Farmer from 1963, and the story is, fallout shelters are for cows, too. And <laughs> They uh, built it for up to 200 cows. Reportedly, the cows acted the same underground as above ground. They did pretty good. <laughs>
5: with they picked the dippiest font for fallout shelters for cows, too. <laughs> <laughs> this edition of, uh, edition of Nebraska Farmer cost 15 cents.
10: <laughs> Go ahead with the next story. Hi there, my name is Will. Hi, Will. And... I feel like we get a lot of clear history stories about World War II and World War I. Yeah. And I feel like the Cold War was sort of so long that, I don't know, in learning about it, we sort of learn, you know, the general theme, but not many specifics. One of the specific things about World War II that interests me was during World War II, we seem to have become a much more civic generation. You had things like uh, bring in your scrap metal so that, uh, you know, we can make more, you know, munitions and things like that. At least in the history books, it looks like the whole country was on board, you know, behind the war during wartime. And that kind of leads me to wonder whether during a Cold War that the nation felt this kind of uh, civic and sort of um, communal goals. No. Yeah.
1: Oh.
5: No, not at all.
10: Oh. <laughs> no, no,
5: not a bit. Nothing. No. That was the spookiest way you could have said no. Oh boy.
10: Obviously, this would be a better question if there were a couple, you know, people in their late 90s on the <laughs> table who can, because this is what we see in history books, obviously, about the coming together of America during World War II. Right. Uh, that's what we see face value, but I don't know. It, it leaves me wondering, you know, the Cold War was so long, I almost wonder if there was sort of a diminishing return on everyone coming together on in national this...
5: national
6: unity. Yeah, I, in I this this national fatigue, unity. But I think there was fatigue, but I think so much... I of think the, there was Vietnam.
5: Yeah. Oh, yeah, that too, yeah. Wow. Elaine well,
6: with the truth bomb! <laughs> the but truth so much of the Cold War was
5: based back. around consumerism being... Better than the, the communist socialist model. So, you know, if we all rallied together around something, we're, you know, that's not so us. So we all
10: rallied together around like to Gordon Gecko. Things. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> buy, <laughs> buy instead of, uh, you know, donate your tin cans to make more munitions. Right.
3: But Elaine, to your point, it, I mean, is, is, is your point that the Cold War, and perhaps this is because of its length, was so much more complex there were there, there were so many more factions even within American culture that were talking on a national scale about whose side are we on, what you know what really is good, what really is bad is that the
6: is well I think the after Pearl Harbor, the country really did rally around not everybody it wasn 't a hundred percent, but it was a really, really strong support of the war effort, really strong in World War two and Korea nobody even remembers today but the Korean War there was not that kind of unanimity around it and yeah. by the time you get to Vietnam well that that's just we're still living i think with the you know polarization that that came out of the Vietnam War that's what we're still living with now so why
3: wasn't there that kind of unanimity around the Korean War
6: well for one thing people didn't they didn't want to go to war again. They didn't want to send off They're their tired. family members. Yeah. It was never even it, a
5: declared war.
6: It was never declared... Well, World War II was the last war that was ever declared by Congress. Did you know that? That's a, that's a factoid for you. You know, the media shows this too. You know, the World War II movies are pretty heroic. The Korean War movies, uh, you get things like
4: Manchurian East Candidate. East.
6: Candidate. Anybody seen that one? That's a really interesting movie. Well, with the Vietnam War...
10: Whether uh, you were for the war or against the war, there were very strong feelings about it. And I wonder if because, you know, with the Cold War being so long and there not being a hot element to it, if people even felt that strongly about it, you know, there was the fear of being prepared, but I wonder if that was... If there was the sort of political involvement that there was with the Vietnam War, even when people were against it or for it, they're still very politically involved.
6: There was the fear of the draft.
10: Hmm.
6: You know, the most brilliant political move Richard Nixon ever made was to abolish the draft, which he knew would undercut the anti-war movement. And it did. Because so much of the anti-war movement was fueled by, you know, a lot of people who didn't want to get drafted and their family members who didn't want them to get drafted. And once that draft, you know, the national draft was ended and you have an all-volunteer army, well, that undercut one of the main threads of the anti-war movement and that's one reason why, you know, that whole activism dissipated.
0: Yeah, and if we, if we can't have something to close on, I think it should be the brilliance of Richard Nixon, folks. He was... <laughs>
5: A phenomenal one thing we can all agree
0: on. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My enormous thanks to Chloe Radcliffe, John Moe, and Dr. Elaine Tyler May for just being so smart, so funny, so sharp in the moment and uh, and making this a delightful experience. Also, the whole audience at Amsterdam Bar and Hall. A thing you may not know is we taped that show in St. Paul in the middle of April and there was a blizzard. Middle of April blizzard, very fun. But people packed the venue anyway. It's partly because it turns out St. Paul is all above-ground tubes, so you don't have to go outside when you go from building to building. But also it's because they're just really wonderful folks who made the trip and I can't thank them enough. And of course, I would love to thank the whole team at Amsterdam Bar and Hall, which is a fantastic venue and bar and restaurant if you're ever in uh, St. Paul, which is a great city. Also, thanks to Spencer and Bobby Connor in particular there. Additional thanks to Josh Lindgren, Uni Share, Marissa Morales, Hannah Stifle, Hannah Crichton, Andrew Wender-Cohen, Chris Souza, and more people from there. It's just such an effort of so many people to put something like this on the road, and I'm so glad we did And in our food notes, you will find the sources for all the material from our show. Also, the images that we picked out, you can see this shelter where they had a honeymoon. And uh, you can also see the kitchen debate between Nixon and Khrushchev, where they both like pointed at an appliance and are like, our system of running the world is better. Really wild that that happened in real life. And beyond that, please support our guests. Uh, Chloe Radcliffe is an amazing comedian, often in Minnesota because she's from there, but also based in New York. So if you see live stand up in New York, check her out. John Moe is a a pretty legendary author and podcaster and comedian. I'm still amazed I got to talk to him at all. He does a show called The Hilarious World of Depression that is just doing good works. Like it's a comedy show and it's making everyone happier with their brain at the same time. And I believe they have a a new season on the way. They're also looking for your support because it's public media. Uh, So anything you can do there, check out The Hilarious World of Depression that we will footnote. And I highly, highly recommend the works of Dr. Elaine Tyler May, that scholar from the University of Minnesota that we got to talk to, in particular her book Homeward Bound, American Families in the Cold War Era. It's, it's a fantastic work of scholarship. The pictures of this time, uh, like obviously I wasn't alive then, but, but some other people were around in the 50s and, and so on. And either you will love remembering that stuff or you will love getting to see it for the very first time. And beyond that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered live at Amsterdam Bar and Hall and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a space where... People sent requests for what city we should do live shows in, and we got a ton from the Twin Cities. So that's why we came to St. Paul and and next door Minneapolis right there at uh, kind of the top of the Mississippi River. I had never been there, and I had the best time. Let me know if your city would be a good spot for a Cracked podcast in the future. I cannot promise anything, but I like your chances. You know, Maybe we can make it happen. My Twitter account for those requests and more is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Instagram, And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then.